I wanted to share with you about a man who was crossing the road one day and a frog called out to him and said, if you kiss me, I'll turn into a beautiful princess. He bent over, he picked up the frog, he smiled at it, and he put it in his pocket. Well, the frog spoke up again from his pocket and said, listen, if you kiss me and turn me back into a beautiful princess, I'll tell everybody how smart and brave and how wonderful you are, and you're my hero. He took the frog out of his pocket, he looked at it, he smiled, and he put the frog back in his pocket. So the frog cried out again, if you kiss me and turn me back into a beautiful princess, I'll I'll, I'll be your loving companion, I'll be your date for a week, everybody will think that you're awesome. And the man took the frog out of his pocket, he smiled at the frog, he put it back in his pocket. So finally the frog said, well listen, what's, okay, if you kiss me then and turn me back into a princess, I'll marry you, I'll be your adoring spouse the rest of your life. And again, the man took the frog out of the pocket, he smiled at the frog, and he put the frog back in his pocket. Finally the frog said, what's the matter? I mean, I'm I'm telling you, and I've told you, I'm a beautiful princess, that I'll marry you, I'll adore you the rest of your life, why won't you kiss me? And the man said, look, I'm a computer programmer. I don't have time for a girlfriend, but a talking frog is cool. (laughs) Why would I share that? Um, I love words of explanation, cool. Uh, Back when I was really, really young, it was groovy and far out, and right on, and fat, and radical. And then it was cool, and tight, and bad, and that's sweet, and wicked. But my favorite phrase of exclamation is awesome. Awesome, still use it, still hear it, awesome. Charlton Heston in movies, the awesome power of God. Surfers in California, oh, that's totally awesome. I mean, they use that kind of vernacular, and I hope that you'll use it. I hope that you'll hear it. I hope that it is something that not only is familiar to you, but I want from after this morning, every time you hear that word, I want you to think about Jesus Christ. Because he alone is awesome, awesome. My purpose in bringing up awesome is not for you to stop using it, but to relate it to the person in whom it's due which is Christ himself. And this morning, we're gonna do something a little unusual, and that is instead of walking through a particular passage, we're going to walk through a theology. It's called Christology, or about the person of Jesus Christ. And I wanna do it in a way that hopefully is refreshing to you, that is definitely biblical, but it's also in a way that you'll remember it. And remember it in a way where you would think of Christ as being awesome beyond you, all worthy. And I want to teach this in the way that Christ would teach it, and that would be simply. Christ taught profound truths in a very simple manner. Simple is not shallow. Simple is producing clarity, and what we want to have is clarity on the person of Jesus Christ. And so I hope that you will leave today with an awareness of his person that also then gives you a greater understanding and treasuring for what he did for us on the cross. But we're not going to focus on the cross. We're going to focus on the person of Christ, which made the cross unbelievable and awesome. In fact, I'm hoping a couple of things as we look at Christology this morning, and that number one, it would increase your awe factor that there would be a greater awe and wonder in your worship, in your thoughts about Jesus Christ as you think of him, as you walk with him, and to keep our eyes off ourselves and onto our awesome Savior. 
Secondly, I hope that you will become more like Christ. Every Sunday when Rick opens up God's word, there are two things that he wants to see happen. Two, every single Sunday. Are you ready what they are? They're very simple. One is that you either come to Christ, two, that you would become more like Christ. Those are the two things that he wants more than anything to happen, and we want that to happen this morning. Because that's what the Spirit of God, if he is indwelling you, that's what he wants to accomplish. He wants to conform you to the image of Christ. Isn't that what he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 29? Whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. God wants to make us look more like his Son. But we can't do that unless we really know him. And so number three, I'm hoping as we look at Christology that it'll increase your love for Christ that you would love him more. You can't really love him unless you know him. So as you see him more intimately, my prayer is that you will love him more deeply. And then fourthly, that you would mimic what Christ values and that you would disdain what he disdains and that you would reject what he rejects and adore what he adores, that you would understand him better and mimic him better in that way. And then ultimately, hopefully, that when you hear the word awesome, fifthly, I want you to be thinking about Christ, that you would think about him as being the awesome God that we sing about and we praise him for. So to do that, I'm gonna challenge you as we begin this study of Christology or the study of Christ, the person of Christ, and that would be to give you a little test. I know it's Sunday morning, but we're not supposed to do this, but I'm going to cross that hidden line and ask you to participate. So you've got to raise your hand, all right, and look around at people who are not raising their hand and point them out. Okay, here we go. Number one, true or false, Jesus possessed two natures, human and divine, and two personalities, human and divine. How many of you would say that's true? How many of you say that's false? The answer is false. Jesus does possess two natures, both fully human and fully divine, but in the person of Christ, both humanity and deity exists in one person, without confusion, with one personality, not two personalities. Jesus is not schizophrenic, all right? Now, number two, true or false? It was possible for Jesus to sin, but he chose not to. How many say true? How many say false? How many are not going to answer now because you got the first one wrong? <laughs> the answer is false. It was not possible for Jesus to sin at any time. Jesus Christ is God. God cannot sin. It was not possible. We'll explain that in a moment. Number three, true or false, Christ gave up his divine attributes in order to become a man. His deity was hidden in his humanity. How many say true? How many say false? The answer is false, that's right. God cannot give up his attributes and still be God. You see, Jesus Christ was not merely the baby of Christmas. He's not merely the martyr of Easter. He is so much more than that. And the reason our calendars say 2017, one reason, and that 2017 years ago, Jesus Christ was born a man and absolutely radically transformed our planet radically, and it wasn't merely his work on the cross that radically transformed us, it was actually his person, which is totally awesome. What do I mean? Point number one in your outline, please follow along. Number one, Christ is eternal. He's eternal. And even though Christ was born a man around 2017 years ago, 
He had no beginning and he has no end. Jesus Christ is not a created being. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to that Old Testament part of your scripture, Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah, then Jeremiah, somewhere there in the middle of your Old Testament. For some of you, the crispy portion of your Bible. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it tells us a lot about Christ. People consider Isaiah the doctrine of salvation. They consider it the fifth gospel. And in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it tells us about Christ in the Old Testament. Verse 6, it says, for a familiar verse, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, now watch this, Eternal Father. It literally means in Hebrew, the Father of Eternity, the one who oversees eternity. Now if you would go to the New Testament and go to Colossians chapter one. Colossians chapter one, talking about their, you and I being complete in Christ as believers. It also shows us who Christ is and it says in verse 16 of Colossians chapter one, for by him, Christ, all things were what? What does it say? Created. All things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Look at verse 16, it says Christ is the creator, and then verse 17, it says that Christ was before all creation, before all things. He, he could not be created because he is before creation. He holds all creation together. The Lord Jesus Christ, even in the midst of his enemies, in John chapter 8, verse 58, said, before Abraham was, what? I am. And with that statement, the Jews picked up stones to kill him because he was calling himself eternal God. Jesus Christ existed before anything. Anything in the universe was created. And he is equal to and in communion with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity. What's amazing is this. The same Christ who created all there is appeared on earth throughout the Old Testament story and throughout the Old Testament history. If you would, turn to Joshua chapter 5, Joshua chapter 5, and understand as you do that it was God the Son who appeared to Abraham with two angels in Genesis 19 to tell Abraham about the coming birth of Isaac and the destruction of Sodom. It was Christ who appeared to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. That was Christ. It was the second person of the Trinity who most likely walked with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace in Daniel chapter 3. Most solid theologians, most, feel that any time God appeared in the Old Testament in any form, it was the role of the second person of the Trinity, 
Jesus Christ to manifest himself. That was part of his function in the Trinity, was to be the one who manifests himself to humanity. My favorite appearance of Christ in the Old Testament is Joshua chapter 5. Not a familiar one, but one that is rich. Joshua, okay, is right by Jericho. He looks up and he sees a mighty man. Now this is an ominous figure. This man is so awesome, his sword is drawn ready for battle. They're about to deal with Jericho here and this is, could be a bad sign. This could be something uh, intimidating here and this man is so awesome that Joshua asks him, are you for us on our side or are you for our adversaries? He needs to know. Joshua sees this incredible man and he asks him, whose side are you on? Our side or our enemy's side? I mean, who are we fighting here? And this mighty man who we believe to be Christ says to Joshua, in essence, that's the wrong question, Joshua. I'm not on your side. I'm on the other side. I'm on the Lord's side. Don't you love that? I'm not here to take sides. I'm here to take over. Isn't that great? It's awesome, awesome being. He's so awesome. He says, I'm not here. I'm going to take over this thing. And Joshua worships him since he's on holy ground. And if this were an angel, then angel would not allow that. So we assume at this point that this is the second person of the Trinity. Don't miss this, though. The Bible presents Jesus Christ as the one who exists forever. Before he was born, he is appearing. Before anything was created, he existed. After his death on the cross, he exists. Over 300 scriptures written over hundreds of years before his birth perfectly predict his birth, his life, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ is eternal. Now this is profound. I know this is familiar turf, but that little baby being held by Mary is her creator. There's a profound thought. The little baby is the one who created his mother and his stepfather. As a child, Jesus could look up at the stars and name them and say, I made those. I look up at the stars, especially in the high Sierras at 13,000 feet, and go, wow, look at the Milky Way. And that's just one galaxy among Millions of innumerable galaxies that Christ created. He's eternal. As a young man, and I'm not trying to be irreverent here, when his friends would say, wow, Rachel's pretty, Jesus could have said, I can cook good, can I? He was born on a date and time, yet Christ existed forever and appeared to many over thousands of years of the Old Testament, that is totally what? That's awesome. Would you agree with that? That's awesome. The little baby is her creator. That's awesome. 
But it goes beyond that Christology and that, secondly, Jesus Christ was born as a man. Born as a man. Our creator, the one who made you, the one who made me, and everything, not only appeared as a man, but he actually became a man in order to save us from our sins. Turn over, you would, to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 in this gospel that seeks to prove that Christ is God. Look at verses 1 through 3 of John chapter 1 and then verse 14. John chapter 1, fourth gospel. It says this, familiar passage again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. And verse 3, and all things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that was come into being. Now look at verse 14. And the word, this word, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, the glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. This eternal God who created all things becomes flesh. Now, think about that word now, incarnation. You've heard it, right? Incarnation, the center part of that word, Carne. Does that sound familiar to you? Carne. Anybody with a Hispanic background? Carne. Sada. Carne asada. Are you with me? Okay. Carne or chili con carne. I'm not, again, chili with meat, right? Incarnation. God with meat on. God became a man. Incarnation. Galatians 4.4, 4, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now the question new theologians should be asking, how could God, who is all-powerful, perfectly holy, present everywhere, totally without sin, at the same time become a man? The answer is the virgin birth. The virgin birth. Way back at the beginning of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, as God judges Satan at the fall, who used the serpent to tempt Eve, the Bible gives us the first gospel. Genesis 3.15 in Latin is the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. And it says this in verse 15 of Genesis 3, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Here the singular offspring of the woman, that's Christ, will crush the enemy's head, that's Satan who was behind the actions of the serpent. But did you notice that the virgin birth is intimated here? Since it states the woman's seed, her seed, will be the one to defeat the enemy Satan. Women do not have seed. Only men have seed or refer to having seed. Christ will be born not of a man, and a woman, but of God and a woman. And so it's intimated here of the virgin birth. Now you know Matthew chapter one, so let me read some verses from Matthew chapter one. Before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit, God and Mary. Joseph, the son of David, do not be afraid. Take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in here is of the Holy Spirit. 
Behold, he says, the virgin shall be with child. And then verse 25, he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. God caused Mary to become pregnant. This Jesus had Joseph as a legal father, but he was actually born of God through the Holy Spirit, being God himself. Now, don't miss the wonder here. This is not being irreverent. Think about Christ now as a child. God messed his pants. He slept. He cried. He cooed. I want you to see the earthiness of of this birth, of the humility of Christ to become a man. He later tripped and fell and scraped his knee. He, he, He was without sin, but he didn't always get the food to his mouth. Are you with me on this? Are you struggling with this? I'm not being irreverent. He was a child. As a boy, he laughed, he ran, he played, yet he was God. He was perfect, so of course he didn't get along with his brothers and sisters. But understand, I wonder, do you? Did Christ know that he was God as a baby? He limited himself. And yet he was always fully God, correct? Could he have said, you know, at some point as a little baby, you know, how about some chocolate milk today? Could he have said that? Now we know that when Jesus was at the age of 12, when his parents left him behind at the temple in Luke chapter 2, that Jesus did know that he was God who needed to be about his father's business in his father's house, which is incredible to think about a 12-year-old knowing that he is fully God and fully man. But did he know before 12? At what point did he know? The Bible doesn't say. But we can imagine, when was it and what was it like to be completely dependent as a baby, as a little boy, and yet totally all-powerful and all-knowing creator God? How does that work? Does that not cause you to kind of think and wonder about the wonder of the person of Christ? Our creator who spun the galaxies into place was a baby, a little boy, a teenager, a young man who looked normal, who acted regular. He left footprints, friends. There was no halo above him. Except he never sinned. And you know what? That is totally what? What is that? That's awesome. What is it? Awesome. Some of you are getting it. Number three, Christ also gave up his rights as God. He gave up his rights as God. When Christ was born as a man, what happened was complete humanity was added to complete deity. And yet Christ's glory and his appearance of God was veiled so that act of giving up his divine rights is called the kenosis. The kenosis, the emptying of Christ, and it's described by Paul in Philippians chapter 2. So turn in your Bibles, Philippians chapter 2. Turn there and see it. Now think about it. Christ was seen by people as tired, hungry. They saw him suffer and weep, and thus they concluded that he was only a man, but in reality, He was made in the likeness of men, but he is still 100% God, 100% man. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. 
All of this written so that we would be unified. All of this written as an example for us to fight for unity. He says this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, Have this attitude in yourself, which also is in Christ Jesus, who although he existed continually as God in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, verse 7, but he emptied himself. How? What's the context say? How did he empty himself? Right there. Taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Now how? He added humanity. He exchanged the outward manifestation of God, his glory, for the outward manifestation of man. Verse 8. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross, a criminal's death. Now what changed in the person of Christ? Not his nature, but what changed in the second person of the Trinity in the incarnation was first the addition of total and complete humanity. And secondly, the veiling of his divine glory. The veiling of his divine glory. Those two things. See, Christ Jesus was and still is the second person of the Trinity. That never, ever ceased. And as a man, he is still fully God in all his divine attributes, fully capable of functioning as creator, God of the universe, yet he voluntarily restricts the use of his divine attributes by his own choice. Whoa. Jesus determined to fully experience life as one of his people, as one of his children, as one of his creation. In other words, Christ did not use his divine power to elevate himself above humanity. Even though he had a right to, and he did that for you and I. That's why we treasure the story, Mark Twain, the prince and the pauper. The prince who lives among the people as the pauper is in the same way what Christ did, never stopped being the great prince. He himself did appear like just a normal man among us. And that's why 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became what? Poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. That's why Jesus prayed in John 17, verse 5, Now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, watch this, listen, with the glory which I ever had with thee before the world was. Christ set aside the outward manifestation of his glory while he lived among us. He didn't glow. There was no Shekinah. There was no manifestation of his deity. Now, we did see his glory once, right? Where was that? On the Mount of Transfiguration. The veil was pulled back for a moment. Three disciples saw Christ for who he really was. And their bumbling, mumbling response teaches us how awesome that really was. They couldn't even respond. In fact, the difference between the veiled Christ and the unveiled Christ is probably best illustrated in the Apostle John. Remember, at the upper room, John is actually leaning up against Christ in deep affection, and yet when John the Apostle sees the resurrected, glorified Christ on the island of Patmos, what happens? 
he falls down in a dead faint. The very one who was closest to him veiled could not stand in his presence unveiled. That tells you who Christ is and what he did for us. I think it's amazing, and don't miss the point. If the creator of the universe would give up his rights as God in order to serve us, if Christ can wrap himself in a towel and tenderly wash the disciples' feet, even though Judas, who he knew would betray him, then can we not give up our rights for one another? That's the point of Philippians 2. Can we not give up our rights like the way he gave up his rights? I wonder. This is me. And I tend to walk kind of a weird edge, so forgive me. But do you think that Jesus scrubbed Judas' feet just a little bit harder? You know, I, do you think he was tempted at that point to when he grabbed his foot and an ankle to kind of just <clears throat> give a little twist there? Because I'm telling you, that would be me if I knew what he was going to do. That would be me. In my flesh, that's what I would have done, but not Christ. Even his enemies, even the one who would betray him, he would wash his feet as well and give up his rights. And if Christ would give up his rights and serve his enemies, then can we not give up our rights to serve our spouses, our parents, unthankful children, people in our ministry, even those who make life difficult, the undeserving? We teach our congregation a lot about how to get along with each other. I'm sure Rick does the same. The first thing you need to do to get along with other Christians is in 1 Peter 4, love covers a multitude of sins. Because we're sinning every day. Can I hear an amen to that? Every day. Not intentionally, but we're doing it. Not defiantly, but we're doing it. And we need to love one another. And, and recognizing that I'm a sinner and you're a sinner allows me to cover you with sin. I don't necessarily need to confront you every time I see you sin. Because I love you. And I know that you're a sinner. Now, if it's defiant, if you intend to do harm, if you're saying, I know what the Bible says, but I'm going to do what I want anyway, I probably need to say something. Would you agree? Sure, I need to come alongside you. I need to confront that. But I don't need to. I used to have people in my first five years at Faith Bible Church in Marietta, California. They would call me up on Sunday, and they go, I didn't really mean to say that. I didn't really mean to say this. And you know what my first response is? What'd you say? I forgot. And, and then they're telling me, and I'm like, oh, man, I, I, didn't, I didn't think anything of that. I, I, because I love you. I don't care. But I, I realize that we're both growing together. Are you with me on this? Love covers a multitude of sins. It's, if Christ can give up his rights, can we not give up ours and care about one another? I'm not talking about tolerating intentional defiant sin. I'm not saying that. We need to come alongside each other and help each other when we kind of violate the Scripture intentionally and defiantly. But there's a lot of sin in each other's lives that we just give grace to one another. Isn't that not true? Isn't that what he means? And here he is, the creator of the universe, yet he gives up his rights to be born as a baby, live as a servant, die to save his own from their sins, and that, my friends, is totally what? That's awesome. That's awesome. Number four, he had two natures, yet one person. 
Two natures, yet one person. Christ is 100% God and 100% man, joined in one person without confusion. This is called the hypostatic union. You want to impress people? Yes, Christ and the hypostatic union. People will think you're a theologian right away. Jesus was not a multiple personality. He did not say, hi, I'm schizophrenic, and so am I. There was no confusion between God and man, but all the attributes of sinless humanity and all the attributes of perfect deity belong to the one person, the person of Christ. It was not merely his humanity when he wept, but his humanity allowed him to weep. It was not merely his deity when he raised the dead, but the whole person, the one person, Jesus Christ, the God-man who raised the dead. If you find that difficult to understand, think on this. Jesus was omnipresent everywhere as God, yet never more than one place at a time as man, yet he's one person. Does that cause your head to go tilt? There's no confusion, no lessening of God, no lessening of man, every act fully God, fully man. So the God-man was in pain, he was hungry, he was sorrowful, he was sleepy, he was deserted, he was rejected, he was mocked, he was beaten, and the God-man calmed the storm, which we read about, Luke. He healed the leper, he raised the dead. Here's the point. If he wasn't 100% God, then his sacrificial death for our sins would not have been perfect, therefore unacceptable to God. If he wasn't 100% man, he could not have been our substitute and died in our place and bore our sin. He had to be 100% God, 100% man, one person, no confusion. Now you realize, your death, your ability to die, the fact that you can die is what allows God to save you. Now there are some of you in this room who understand what I mean when I say we hate death. Death has robbed us of people that we care about and love. Amen to that? We hate death. But the very fact of death being a part of our human existence is what allowed us to be redeemed. Do you understand that? Remember what God did after the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden? He sent them out of the garden. And he put this gigantic samurai angel in front of the tree of life and said, you cannot eat from this tree. Why? Because if they ate of that tree while they are now fallen in sin, they would be eternally fallen in sin. He sent them out of the garden so they wouldn't eat of the tree so they could die. You say, why? Because then someone in the future who was perfect could die in their place. Angels can't die. There is no redemption for angels. When a third of the angels fell, they fell. There is no redemption for them. The very fact that you can die has allowed the Savior to die in your place, which then allows you to then have salvation forever. That's how gracious God is to you. And though we hate death, it was death itself that allowed us to be redeemed. Isn't that awesome? That's the person of Christ. And Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. And that, my friends, is what? It's totally awesome. That also means that Christ, number five, could not sin. Could not sin. 
Jesus Christ lived an impeccable life. In other words, not only did he not sin, he could not sin. Because Christ is fully God and fully man, his divine attributes of holiness, immutability, omnipotence would not allow him to sin. Even though he is temptable because he's 100% man, he cannot sin. Now picture this. Picture a giant block, 12 foot by 12 foot by 12 foot, of solid steel. But welded to that block is a bendable wire but it's welded to that steel. When you press up against that wire, it feels the pressure, does it not? Nod your head, feels the pressure, but is that block gonna move? It's not gonna move. That's Christ's deity and his humanity. He cannot be moved in his humanity because he is welded one with his deity. It's impossible for him to sin, but I hear you saying, what about Hebrews chapter four, verse 15? I'm so glad you brought that up. It says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Christ was tempted, he was tempted, but he could not and did not sin. Can God sin, yes or no? Was Jesus 100% God, yes or no? Then Jesus cannot sin. Then you say, wait a minute, his temptation, well then, well then that was a game. If he couldn't sin, the answer to that is absolutely not. You see, the greater the ability to resist means the greater temptation and attack that's given. Just like a massive fort will take more punishment from artillery than a wimpy fort, Christ in the impregnable Son of God felt the full force of the greatest temptation. We battle with sin, and the battle with sin is the temptation. Once we give in, the battle's over. Well, Christ never lost the battle, never lost the battle, and so it just intensified against him. And he felt the full storm thrown against him. Now I have to be honest, this is my first time in Kansas, and as I was flying in, I was looking for Dorothy and tornadoes. I'm sorry. So here you are, you have a tornado. And in that tornado, at 50 miles an hour, one tree falls over. The wind intensifies to 100 miles an hour, another tree falls over. It intensifies to 150 miles an hour, another tree falls over. Wind gets up to 200 miles an hour, but there's one tree that stands the entire time. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you understand that in temptation, as it intensified, Jesus stood. So as it got worse, he stood. As it got worse, he stood. So he felt the full force of temptation, far greater than you ever have. When you would have fallen, he's still standing. So he feels the full attack of the enemy and the full impact of temptation more so than you ever will, because he never fell. Therefore, he can totally identify with all your struggles, and he felt the full, greater pressure in every area, and can look on you and sympathize and help. Long after you and I fall to the full force of temptation, Christ is still standing, he's still resisting. Some of you are battling with huge temptations. 
There's a sin that's wearing you down. You need to remember and understand that Jesus Christ understands and he resisted long after you fell and he knows what you're going through. So as you depend on him, he can lead you to the way of escape, the way to overcome, the way to resist because he's been there. You can't fight it alone through the indwelling spirit of God by an act of your will depending on the word of God you can stand with Christ. Who knows? He knows the full struggle against the temptation to lust, the temptation to greed, the temptation to selfishness, the temptation to bitterness and frustration and pride. Yet never once did he sin, nor could he have sinned. And friends, that is totally what? Awesome. So what? What does all this mean? Let me summarize. Number one. Christ understands your struggle to sin and your struggle with sin. Where you have failed, he's gone beyond and experienced the full force of temptation, even to the point of sweating great drops of blood. I don't think there's any in the room who have been as anxious and as under the stress of genuine temptation as Christ to sweat blood. Christ did. Christ understands all your struggles, your private nightmares, your secret sins, your painful compromises, your dark closet past, your lustful wants, and your worst fears. You can be honest with him. He desires you to be honest with him. He's the only one who can fully understand your battle, and he will help you cast your care upon him because he cares for you. First Peter. Number two. Christ is worthy of all your worship. A person that great, that awesome, deserves your worship. Now, worship is not what we just do here on Sunday. Worship is our lives. True worship is our whole life offered to him, is it not? Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, your acceptable worship is to offer yourself as a living sacrifice. You will worship today not because you sang songs, but you offered your life again to Christ. It's all of me for all of you. It's I'm giving myself to you. That's worship, friends. And the greatest Sunday worship occurs when you've been worshiping all week long with everything that you do. It's offered to him. Your work is offered to him. Your parenting is offered to him. Your discipleship is offered to him. Your efforts in school are offered to him. It's all for him. That's worship. And our lives are to be extended to him. Your life as a worshiper is not not, I repeat, like a Swanson hungry man dinner. Okay? Some of you live your life that way. That is not your worship. Your worship is not in compartments where the peas of gaggy workiness never, never conflict with the potatoes of home life or the meat of your job. They're, they're, they're not separate. Some of us think, oh, look, my church dessert is going really well, so my life is really well before the Lord. That's not worship. That's not worship, especially if your peas of your home life is terrible and rotten. Some people think, well, that can be rotten as long as my church attendance is really good. And we think, I'm really pleasing him. God does not look at your life this way. God does not look at your life like a Swanson dinner. God looks at your life like you're a chicken pot pie. Okay? 
Everything's mixed together. Work and school and marriage and family and relationships all together. And if one part's rotten, what's your worship like? Rotten. We can't compartmentalize. It is be all of us for all of him, every aspect. Your driving today is supposed to be worship. And you can stand out in the parking lot today and I can tell you, that guy's worshiping, that guy's not worshiping. You know what I mean? We need to offer everything that we are and everything that we have as worship. Can I hear an amen to that? Is Christ not awesome enough for us to give all that we are for all that he is? Yes, he is. So be that person. Be that person who leaves here today saying, Lord, I've compartmentalized my life no longer. It is to be every aspect, every relationship, every dialogue, every aspect of my work, every relationship that I maintain is to be worship offered to him because he is so awesome. And what he did for me is beyond comprehension. Grace should cause us to wonder and gasp at what he did for us. The living God of the universe died in your place. How can we not be blown away by that? Christ, the creator God, gave you everything. Can we not then say, Lord, my life is yours? Number three, Christ is to be enjoyed as a person. It's not about rules. It's not about religion. There are some people who keep rules to look spiritual. They live moral to feel less guilty, but they don't know Christ. Christ is not an idea. He's not a concept. He's not a religious leader. He's a person, the person of God. And he said in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. The know there talks about not the knowledge of facts. It's personal, intimate, relational knowledge, gnosko. Don't fall into the trap of just seeking his blessings, acknowledging him, but not walking with him and living with him. He's a person. He enjoys your company. He wants to be a person to you and to walk with you and for you to walk with him because he's so awesome. Number four, Christ is knowable, but he is not fully understandable. I mean, how could Christ be temptable and not able to sin? How could Christ have two natures but be only one person? How could Christ be fully man yet be omnipresent? Because of our pride, we think if God would just explain himself a little bit better, then we'd understand him. But he is knowable, but he is not fully understandable. Just a one reminder this morning, he is limitless and you are what? Limited. You're the creation. He's the creator. He's done everything he can to reveal himself through his word, but there are aspects of God that we will never understand, and we will be learning about him for all eternity. Amen to that? He is vast and big and huge, and therefore worship him as one who is worthy of your awe and worthy of your wonder. Number five, We're a lot like Christ when we give up our rights like he did in marriage and in relationships when you deny yourself, when you serve and give yourself away, when you don't demand your rights, when you're the servant and an obedient servant, an obedient and like Christ is to the point of death. If God would do that for us, then we should do that and that's how we show him off. That says, Philippians 4 says, a forbearing spirit. It's a spirit that says, when everybody else is fighting for their rights, I've accepted God's providence. 
and I acknowledge the sovereignty of God and I have joy in my life when everything's falling apart. Serve people, sacrifice for them, even those you're trying to reach for Christ and they will see him more readily through those actions of denial. We're able to put him on display when we give up our rights. Number six, Christ became a man to save sinners. Christ had to be fully God in order to sacrifice to be perfect and acceptable. He had to be a man in order for him to be our substitute. And this is exactly what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God punished Jesus as if Jesus personally committed every sin and committed every, by every person who ever believed. In fact, God killed Jesus as if he lived my life of sin. And God treats his children now as if we live Jesus' perfect life. Since I'm a Christian, then the Lord gets all my sin and I get his perfect righteousness. What a deal. I don't earn it. I don't work for it. It's given as a free gift. The non-Christian thinks that we have to work hard and keep rules. The religious person thinks they have to obey stuff to be accepted. The true Christian is accepted. And then they want to obey him from a heart that's been transformed. All of this is made possible by God becoming a man and the person of Christ. So I invite you this morning to respond to the person of Christ, to submit your life to him, to believe that he did come, was born as a child, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins and separated us from God, rose from the dead, and as you put your life in his hands, as you give him your sin, he gives you his righteousness. Cry out to him to open your heart, to give you faith and repentance, to respond to him. Today could be the last day of compelling. You need to respond to Jesus Christ. You need to surrender your life to him. Not just the external action of receiving his righteousness, but if he truly saves you, you are born again. You are a different person. You look the same on the outside, but you are not the same. You have a new heart that wants to respond to his forgiveness, to be restored to a right relationship with your creator, and to be given eternal life now and eternal life forever in heaven. And number seven, Christ did all of this because he is totally what? Awesome. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above. With wisdom, power, and love, our God is an awesome God. Let's pray together.